0: All right, Bo, how you doing?
1: Good, fantastic, good afternoon, good evening.
0: Good, well I hope this works, you're all the way over in Alaska, so.
1: Yeah, I hear you loud and clear.
0: Am I making you miss work?
1: I wouldn't say I miss it. <laughs> Am I, yeah. I, I, I stopped working for the day
0: yeah do you have a lot of flexibility in your job
1: i do i'm I'm really really fortunate in that regard to have a good amount of flexibility um and i I take advantage of it especially this time of year uh summer summer I do a lot of field work and there's a lot going on so I take some flexibility now and give it up later
0: yeah i'm I'm getting some reports that I'm getting double audio so let me make sure it's clear before we get moving forward all right so anyone listening who can text me okay seems okay now
1: all right sounds great to me
0: great well we're gonna start over (laughs) (laughs) all right bo so how are you doing
1: fantastic it's a beautiful spring day in alaska
0: so I'm not making you miss work. I mean, you left work, but I left work. but work you're fine. you okay with it. Yeah, yep. it works okay with it. So you and I have known each other for a very long time. Um, well, since high school, I guess we didn't know each other when we were little kids.
1: No, but we got to be at about a quarter century now, right?
0: Yeah, it's uh, it's it's getting there. Um. Is it a quarter century? I mean,
1: yeah. We, yeah.
0: Yeah, I guess so. So when I knew you in high school, I, I guess I didn't think of you as much of an outdoorsman. Was that a thing you were really involved with as a kid?
1: Um, not a ton. I didn't grow up in a like incredibly outdoorsy family. I think my dad and I went camping once growing up, um, but my dad was born and raised in Colorado, and my grandparents always lived there. And so, you know, we made annual family trips to Colorado and to the Rocky Mountains. Um, and, you know, that place and mountains just always always kind of resonated with me. So I, can, you... I can remember even middle school just... You know, looking at magazines or whatever, and thinking, "Man, like I, I want to be near, be near mountains."
0: Yeah. So, did you ski as a kid?
1: Um, I did just through you know the the Millbrook, you know, Cannonsburg ski program. I'd take the bus <laughs> out there in the afternoons or something, or in the evenings, and would ski Cannonsburg. Um. You know, the first couple of years of high school, I didn't because I played basketball, and that was kind of verboten in the in the basketball program. Um, as soon as you and I were both cut from varsity my junior year, yeah,
0: but I, I was cut. I was cut every year, <laughs> to be clear. Well,
1: I, I wasn't. I wasn't bringing that part up, but um, but basically, as soon as I got cut, I went and bought a snowboard, and. Then I spent a lot of evenings driving. I mean, you remember my big old van, but I'd pile some of the, uh, some of the yahoos from school into the van and we'd go to Cannonsburg or Pando ski area. And, you know, that was, that was Michigan skiing.
0: Yeah. And, um, to make sure the record is clear, I actually wasn't cut as a senior, but we've covered the before yes that's, <laughs> the, that's
1: available in the first
0: podcast so, someone else could hear story. the story uh, elsewhere but um but nonetheless we didn't play basketball and and you did i guess i do remember you having a snowboard mm-hmm. and um and having a van and and i just when you told me you were moving to Alaska it did take me by surprise um even though yeah you did a couple outdoorsy things but i didn't think of you as a guy who was just going to go out and live in the mountains um and just live a totally different experience than what it's like growing up in west michigan
1: yeah
0: um, what what was it that caused you to do that where you decided, like, hey, I'm just going to get up, pack my stuff, um, get into a beat-up truck, basically.
1: 1987 and, Ford Ranger.
0: And, and drive over to Alaska. Like, did you think about going somewhere else? Or was it like, I'm just going to Alaska and that's it? Was it just about getting out of West Michigan? Or was it, this is the place I have to be?
1: Uh, first and foremost, it was about getting out of West Michigan. And, you know, by the time I graduated from college, it was down to, you know, I honestly thought I'd end up in Colorado. That was a place I was familiar with, had some contacts. Um, I'd also, I did spend some time in Belize in Central America in college um, and put a little bit of energy into seeing if I could find some work for an NGO or something down there. Nothing panned out. Um, I've had a couple of cousins who've lived in Alaska, you know, since well, I think, you know, early nineties was the first one was here. Um, and one of their brothers is my age and he was hanging. it was after graduation, he and I were hanging out one evening and he, he said, well, I'm, I'm going to Alaska to do a roof roofing job. And I was working construction at the time. And I just kind of, you know, flippantly said, well, do you need some help? <laughs> And I I think he just said, you know, are you serious? And it was all of two, not even three weeks later. And I'd bought that 87 Ford Ranger and we were on the road headed west. So it was very, how old were you then? 22. It was, it was right after graduation.
0: And when you suggested that you go out and help with that, were you just joking and like, you sort of fell into it? And did did you realize how big a move it was?
1: Um I was halfway joking, but there was enough of me that was serious. Um you know, like I said, I would I was ready to get out of Michigan. And so it just you know, like I said, I said it flippantly, but it very quickly gathered some momentum. Um, I had incredibly supportive parents who didn't give me any grief about it. I mean, I think, I think now about, you know, my mom watching me at 22 years old, jumping into this old truck and driving 4,000 plus miles. And I mean, she was, she was helping me buy food and, you know, jumper cables and other things to make this thing happen. So, um, I think there was some consolation for her that, My older cousin, Doug, lived up here, and he very graciously let me stay with him and his wife and his young kids when I got up here. So I had some contacts. I had some people um, that made it possible. I certainly didn't plan to be here 20 years later. I can't really say that I, I had a plan. I kind of told myself, "So well, you know, high school was four years, college was four years. My plan was sort of, I'll spend four years in Alaska and then go do grad school or something. Um, in that four years, I met my wife up here and got married and had, had made Alaska home. Um, you know, when I moved up here, it didn't take me very long. I was really blessed to fall in with some amazing people right off the bat. And this place quickly just became home for me.
0: What was it about west michigan that made you want to move or or michigan generally yeah was it just is it like a lot of people where they just want to get away from where they grew up because they want to try something new or was there something that
1: bothered you about it um big part of it was a lack of mountains and (laughs) i i I, you know I, i remember saying it a lot it was like you know if we could replace detroit with a decent mountain range i wouldn't necessarily need to go anywhere But we, you know, it's Detroit. It's not a mountain range. I mean, Michigan, Michigan's a fantastic place. You know, the rivers and the forests there are, are really special. And, you know, and obviously the lakeshore and the dunes. So it's, it's an amazing place. But that stuff just didn't resonate with me like mountains do. Mm -hmm. And there's just a, there's just a joy that, that I get from the mountains that I was never, never going to find in Michigan. And, you know, a 20 hour drive to Colorado to get to mountains is just, you know, it's not something that's regularly feasible.
0: Right. And had you been to the UP or the upper peninsula for those who are listening and don't know, but had you been to the UP as a kid?
1: I not much beyond the bridge.
0: You yeah, because I was,
1: I'm, try, I'm trying to remember how old I was when we did that. But, yeah, you know, we did the Mackinac Island thing and into the UP. Um, never got over in kind of the western UP, northern Wisconsin.
0: Yeah, because um, I was curious if the experience would be somewhat similar to Alaska in, in how it feels.
1: From people I know that have lived there, or gone to school there, it's, you know, kind of discussed as one of the most Alaskan places in the lower 48 and just kind of has that, you know, lots of, you know, the small communities that in sparsely populated places. And, and so, you know, if, if I were to move back to the lower 48 for whatever reason, at some point in time, it would, it would be an area that would get some serious consideration from me. Yeah. Um, I did, did try living in Montana briefly. My, my wife was born and raised in Montana. Um, and in 2008, We moved down there, just spend some time, be closer to family. Um, My oldest kid was born down there, but about as soon as we landed there, we started making plans to move back and get back to Alaska pretty much as quickly as we could.
0: (laughs) Because Montana was Um, too urban for you?
1: (laughs) (laughs) No, (laughs) Montana, it was, it was a couple things, you know, a, like I said, you know, we had, we had an amazing community of people up here. Um, the spot we landed in Montana was Great Falls. And so it didn't, it was about an hour to get to mountains. It's kind of right where the Rocky Mountains peter out into the plains. There's some amazing spots. Um, Missouri River flows right through there, you know. So it was a beautiful area, but, you know, just now I left work. And it's a 15, 20-minute drive. and. I'm basically sitting on the side of a mountain and looking down over Anchorage and, you know, view of the, the ocean that's uh, just on the edge of Anchorage. So probably the biggest thing in Montana was actually the economics. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was, you know, it was oh eight oh nine So it was it was the recession. But I remember talking to it was actually a police officer, sheriff's deputy there and he said something about he's like yeah he's like you know the economy's stale here and it's always been stale he's like the the recession hasn't really hurt us cuz we didn't have a whole lot going um you know i was working various jobs i worked as a uh, a meter reader for the gas company
0: <laughs>
1: i literally i literally went into almost every single yard in town and looked at the gas meter and entered the numbers to record how much gas they'd used and, you know, I was 30 years old and making $10 and change an hour. Yeah. And it just, so the economics of it just, it didn't pencil out. You know, my wife and I were both working full time to make what she could make as a nurse up here. Um, when we'd moved there, I was actually excited to live in the lower 48 again, you know, and be able to road trip to places, you know, we don't alaska you drive six hours either direction and you kind of just end up with more of the same but you know in montana it was like well i can get to moab i can get to colorado but does it feel uh,
0: like does it feel like you're in a different country when you're in alaska
1: it feels like you're in alaska yeah it's it's got its own its own unique feel um And, you know, I know there's other places, you know, Pacific Northwest that have, you know, both the coast and the oceans and the mountains, but the population density there is, is way different. Um, you know, and when we, when we were about to have our first kid, one of my uncles who I've got a ton of respect for, you know, sent me an email and it was just, I mean, very kind, very well intentioned, but talked about like, you know, as you're, as you start growing a family, like. You know, it can be a big deal to be close to grandparents and, and he kind of made the pitch for Western Colorado. He's like, you know, Western Colorado has got a lot of the qualities that Alaska has, you know, and I, I read the email and kind of thought to myself, I was like, yeah, but they don't have the salmon (laughs) and, you know, Alaska is the salmon runs up here are a big deal and they're a big deal to everybody. And whether it's, you know, just feeding your family, whether it's, you know, recreation, or if you work in tourism or commercial fishing, you know, the, the salmon here have kept people alive in Alaska for, you know, 10,000 plus years. And, you know, Colorado, Colorado is amazing. I, I got a very special place in my heart for, for that state, but it's not Alaska.
0: Well, what does the so, salmon mean? What does the salmon mean to you? Are you going out and fishing for salmon? Are you? Is this something everyone's doing, or is it just it's such a big part of the economy in your life?
1: Um, no, I we we fish for salmon. Um, you know, we we as Alaska residents, there's certain places you're allowed to. It's called dip netting. And so yeah. you're allowed to take a net that's five feet across, I think is the legal dimensions. And, and I've actually gotten to the point I got a wetsuit for the purpose of dip netting. And so I take this wetsuit and I can wade out into the river or the beach where you're allowed to dip net with this five foot hoop on a, you know, 10 or 12 foot pole. And you just float that thing out in the water and wait for a fish to swim into it. Mm-hmm. and then you run you run back to the beach you conk the salmon knock it out kill it and put it in your cooler and you know, i think as a household know, we're allowed somewhere in the neighborhood of 45 salmon i think which is more than we need for a year oh. but
0: is that's uh, you're saying annually 45?
1: Yes, 45 fish annually.
0: So it's and a very different type of fishing than other fishing.
1: Yeah. Yeah, the dip netting is, you know, it's kind of a, you know, subsistence is a big word up here, whether it's for fishing or harvesting, you know, there's subsistence harvest of moose or caribou or other things. Um, But yeah, the purpose is to fill the freezer or, you know, what my wife and I like to do is to, we smoke the salmon and then can it. And so there's years, you know, I'll end up with a hundred pint jars full of smoked salmon. And then we just eat off that smoked salmon for the year. Um, The last few years, I'll actually take, I take the scraps and the heads and I can those up for my dog. And I'll end up, you know, with, again, a hundred pint jars of canned salmon dog food. And it's, you know, best thing in the world. You can feed your dog. And instead of, you know, spending 70 bucks a bag for, dry dog food you have this amazing amazing resource that returns every summer
0: so maybe this is a ridiculous question because i don't live there and i don't i don't know what it's like but can you freeze the salmon without having a freezer you can just leave it outside or is there a way to use <laughs> because the the weather is so cold for a long chunk of the year do you actually yeah. need to have uh, a mechanical working freezer?
1: You you don't, technically. Um, you know, like I said, the salmon have fed people up here for 10,000 plus years. Um, so you can, you know, we'll often, you know, vacuum seal fillets and freeze them and pull them out. You know, you have salmon dinner with a fillet. Um, what... What people will do in a lot of places, especially, you know, kind of villages around the state, is you just dry the fish. And so they catch them, fillet them, and then you hang them up on wood racks and often with, you know, a a smoky fire going nearby. And just hang them until the meat dries out and it's preserved that way. And then you don't need to refrigerate it. You don't need to can it. And you can just utilize that fish throughout the year. What temperature does it have to be kept at? It's gotta be kept cold though, right? Um no, like well dried fish with some smoke on it will keep safely for for months, you know. It'll basically huh. you know, it'll it'll help keep people alive until the next until the next salmon run the following summer. And, you know, it's an amazing nutritional food that, you know, just the balance of, you know, fat and protein is, it's incredible what it, what it does just, you know, to fuel the body and keep people going and keep people healthy. So, so what percentage of your diet is this? Um, Like a salmon dinner, like
0: something you eat every couple (laughs) days or is it, uh, is it once a week? What's the, you said you you yeah. get about 40, 45 per year, but yep. presumably you're also eating it elsewhere.
1: Yes. Yeah. I mean, you go to, you go to any potluck up up here and you're guaranteed to have multiple salmon dishes show up. Um, and for me, it, it kind of goes in cycles and there's years where I'll eat it a couple days a week. Um, you know, the smoked and canned stuff, I just, I'll pop the lid off and just eat it with a fork. You know, it's just delicious. Um, other years, you know, I'll kind of do it. I'll overdo it on salmon, and I'll back off. And it might be, you know, once a week or every couple of weeks. I'll uh, I'll dive into some salmon.
0: Can you get sick of salmon, or do you do you feel like you always have a craving for salmon?
1: Um, I wouldn't say I get sick of it. Sometimes it's less appealing than others. You know, sometimes there's an evening where it's like, you know, you want a snack and you're like, Oh, what sounds good is just some smoked salmon right now.
0: What are the other things you eat in Alaska that would maybe be not common in Michigan or in other parts of the lower 48?
1: Um, I mean, moose is a readily available and popular, popular thing. I, I'm not a big game hunter. Um, hasn't been a priority. It, it involves a, a fair bit of time. It's a lot of work. Um, in my household, in general, I don't have a lot of big meat eaters, and so to put the time and energy and effort into harvesting a moose um, just hasn't been a priority. But moose is moose is fantastic. Um, had dinner at my my buddy's house lives behind me last Friday, I think, and you know dinner was moose burgers, and it it tastes like a really good hamburger. Um, you know, same with caribou. Caribou is um, a very popular big game animal for people to harvest. And so there's lots of caribou. Um, you know, we've, what I've had opportunity to eat, you know, the list to include, you know, is moose, caribou, um, doll sheep, mountain goats, Um, I've had muskox in the past, which are these crazy prehistoric looking shaggy mammals. Um, that's actually quite tasty. Um, native friends have access to, or have, or harvest, um, various species of whales. And so I've, I've had the opportunity to try, um, a few different species of whale, which are their own very unique flavors, but a a hugely important, you know, cultural, cultural thing and food source. I mean, these, you know, these coastal villages will harvest, you know, these massive animals that, you know, sustain them for, for a good long time. So you brought up something interesting. Do you need,
0: do you need licenses to get to, to hunt for these things? And you mentioned, Natives having different opportunities. Um, yep. So, uh, what are the rules and how how does it work exactly?
1: <laughs> it it varies. You know, it's it's like hunting regulations anywhere, um, and you know the hunting regulation. There's in state and out of state. So if you're an Alaska, an official legal Alaska resident, which is generally defined as living here for 12 calendar months. Um, then you can hunt with an in-state license and you, the in-state regulations apply to you. So, you know, there's certain areas, um, you know, there's spots where you're allowed to harvest five caribou per day, which is more than, you know, my household would ever need, but you know, where the caribou herds are large, you can, you can take that many animals, um. It's somebody out of state, you know, I think an in-state license is in the neighborhood of 50 bucks for a hunting license. Somebody coming from out of state, you know, a big game license or a tag is, you know, four or 500 bucks probably. I haven't, I haven't looked at the numbers in a long time, but you know, every year the Alaska department of fish and game publishes the hunting regulations for that season. And it covers the whole state, you know, and it's broken up into, you know different zones and you know some places you aren't allowed to harvest you know moose at all you know the moose population's too low there or whatever um some places you have to get a special permit or a special tag so so it, it varies depending on where you're at geographically and you know it's a huge a huge state so the uh it's it's very important to know where you're at and what you're allowed to harvest and when based on where you're at.
0: And there are different rules for Alaskan natives, like people who are native
1: peoples. Yes. And then there's also, yep. There's also both. <laughs> yeah. So there's, there's a variety. So where, I clear, want to be clear.
0: Yeah. I don't mean just people who live there, who reside there for more than 12 months, but um, you know, na- people who are, Native to Alaska who have lived there yeah. for maybe centuries.
1: Yeah. Well, and there's, there's rules, different regulations for natives, Alaska natives, um, which is kind of a broad term that encompasses, you know, a whole number of different um, um, tribes is the wrong word. But, you know, Yupik, Inupiat, Haida, there are all these different subgroups within the Alaska native umbrella. Um, so there, there are, you know, traditional or subsistence harvest regulations for them. Um, I had a, a neighbor who's Alaska native who he makes, he'd make harpoons for whaling and for harvesting seals and walrus. You know, I don't think there's anywhere that I can go out and harvest a walrus, but, but he's allowed to, um, same with, same with seals. And because, because of the Alaska Native status, they're allowed to harvest seals and walrus and other, you know, marine mammals that you and I couldn't, couldn't touch. Um, there's also, depending on where you're at, I think different regulations for people that live in bush communities, which are, which is the, you know, 100 plus small communities generally off the road system around Alaska. Um, and it's sort of an acknowledgement that, you know, you're living in this more isolated rural place. And so access to commercial food is possible, but very cost prohibitive in a lot of cases. And so they'll they'll be allowed to hunt maybe more animals or will have, you know, an extended or a different season than just you know your average Alaskan or Anchorage resident. Now, when you moved out there, did you have any trouble adjusting to the dialect? Um. Yes. Yeah. You know, there's there's definitely I think I mean it's probably the case moving anywhere, but there's definitely you know very very Alaskan jargon that you have to you have to learn or figure out. Um you know, thing, you know, the bush, the lower 48, um, you know, machines I can't even get it wrong. Um, snowmobiles are most commonly referred to as snow machines up here. Mm-hmm. Um, but if sometimes in bush communities, they're simply called snow goes. And so there is a, you know, kind of uniquely Alaskan dialect in a lot of ways along with, you know, just, you know, the, the toponyms or place names that go with living anywhere
0: and the native peoples who live there do they make up a, a substantial portion of the population
1: yeah yeah um depending you know depending on where you're at um you know i think in anchorage it's maybe 10 percent of the population might be I think slightly less um you know and over half the state lives in the Anchorage area, but you get off the road system around some of these Bush communities and it'll be, you know, it'll be a town of 200 people and it'll be 90 plus percent Alaska native.
0: Yeah. So, so so when you, when you move there, presumably at first you had a lot of trouble with the way daylight works over there and, and nighttime, where yep. you have several months where you have really extended hours of daylight, um, basically the whole day, and then yep. several months where it's basically pitch black or pretty dark for much of the Yeah. Much yeah, of the day. You,
1: get, you know, Anchorage area will get, you know, four hours of legitimate daylight, you know, winter solstice and the few months surrounding that. Um,
0: I assume you're used to it now, but when you moved out there, did it drive you crazy?
1: Um, It messes with you. It's, it's definitely an adjustment. Um, And there's just a, there's a unique rhythm to the year that is just related, related to the daylight. Um, You know, at this point, I think I heard I was driving the kids to school yesterday and they were doing the weather you know, and part of the weather is they say, you know, sunrise today is at whatever time sunset will be this, giving us, you know, 13 hours and 10 minutes of daylight today, um, an increase of five minutes and 43 seconds from yesterday. You know, so this time of year, we're in our most dramatic daily increase in light, you know, and so, you know, today has five and a half more minutes Of usable daylight than yesterday had and it'll be the same tomorrow and so the days are just rapidly getting longer
0: yeah that's something Um, so in in 10 days you could gain an hour basically
1: yeah yep yeah yeah you basically you basically gain about 30 minutes a week or you know two hours of daylight a month this time of year which is just a huge change um you know and in october november it's the opposite you're You know, you're losing an hour of daylight every week. And so that darkness is just rapidly encroaching. Um, You know, and so I, you know, I mentioned kind of the rhythm to the year. You know, this time of year, everybody kind of starts coming out of the woodwork. Um, You know, winter is kind of dark and it's cold. And so you just, a lot of people just kind of hunker down a bit more or more subdued. You know, you don't, you don't necessarily, you know, you can go a couple months without really crossing paths with your neighbors, maybe. And then this time of year, you know, everybody's getting out, you know, today's 40 something degrees and sunny, you know, and so, so that's, that's outside. like,
0: uh, yeah, they're wearing shorts.
1: What yeah, t-shirt, to- <laughs> t-shirt and flip-flop weather. Exactly. <laughs> you know, we, we had a whole lot of, uh, you know, 10 to 15 below through in Anchorage, you know, through much of, you know, November, December, and into January. And so when you go from 10 or 15 below to 40 above, that's, that's pretty, pretty warm in comparison.
0: So summer weather is like what? 60 degrees.
1: Yeah. It, it depends on the year. A lot of 60 degree weather. Um, we've, we've had summers that get up into the eighties at times. Um, In a good year, we'll get a lot of seventy-something weather. You know, I'm I'm to the point. You know, anything anything that's seventy above is warmer than I even care to deal with. Yeah, it's just it's just too hot for me. Um, but we've had other years. I think it was two thousand seven that was. It was just a very gray, wet winter up here in Anchorage. I think we hit 70 degrees three times that entire year. I mean never never 71, never 72 like 3 days out of the whole year were 70. <laughs> and everything else everything else was colder. So and it was...
0: the the daylight issue, what does it do to you psychologically? Does it does it change people's moods? Like I know people generally say that in winter, there's more depression. People feel down. Um, this often happens also around the holidays, unfortunately, um, because you have so little light and that's not even as extreme for most people, not even close to what you experience in Alaska. So what does this do to people? Um, is there, uh, is there like an epidemic of mental health issues that comes from it? I mean, do you, do you see people who have depression? Do you have more things like suicides that happen? Unfortunately, when you have so much darkness?
1: No, we, we do. Um, And interestingly, you know, a close friend of mine is a, uh, he's a mental health professional. And I was talking with him last week and, you know, he, he just referenced and he's told me this in the past, but, this is actually a really busy time of the year for him because a lot of people who've been depressed through the dark, cold winter haven't even had or have lacked the, the motivation or whatever to, to act on some of the depressive thoughts and you start getting into this time of year and the sun starts coming back and it, actually gives people enough of a boost to to act on their depressive thoughts. And so there's just an uptick in, you know, mental health crises that he experiences in his work this time of year. Um, And then, you know, summer, summertime, people are just, they're giddy. It's, it gets a little ridiculous. You know, I refer to it sometimes as it's manic season. You know, you don't get, you don't get those environmental clues to, to wind down your day. You know, it it doesn't get dark in the evening. And so you just kind of, you'll just keep go, go, go all day long. And, you know, then sleep for a few hours and get up and do it again. And you'll keep that up as long as you can. And then maybe crash for a day and sleep in extra late. And then you get up and do it again. And people will just, will kind of run ourselves ragged all summer long. And, you know, we kind of joke, it's like, well, I'll sleep in October. And you just, you know, the, you know, summer's money-making season for a lot of industries. Um, you know, if you're in tourism, if you're in fishing, um, the, the work I do in environmental consulting, Like that's money-making season. That's when the projects happen. Construction is the same way. And so you just, you know, keep going all summer and you, you know, I might spend 10, 12 days out on a remote project, get home one night, pack the next day for a a family trip, you know, out on, out on the Prince William Sound to a cabin or something. And, you know, and you come home, dump all your gear, and take off on the next hitch of field work. And so you just, just go hard all summer. And and then when October rolls around, you get some colder days and darker nights. It's like it, feel, it feels really good to just slow down and go to bed early. So
0: does everyone have like blackout shades so that they can sleep? How like how do you sleep with so much light coming in?
1: Um yeah, blackout shades. I sleep with an eye mask year round and just block everything out. Um you'll drive around town, you'll see people um will put up tinfoil and just tape tinfoil to the windows in their bedroom to just block out all the light possible and just get, you know, get as much quality rest as you can even though the sun is still trying to shine through your windows. So I don't know what crime is like in
0: Alaska. Presumably it's less than, you know, in a lot of the very populated states in the lower 48. But do you, do you experience a big (laughs) shift in, in criminal activity when you have um, a lot of darkness where now is the time to go maybe break into someone's house or steal something or, maybe assault someone or whatever.
1: Yeah. Well, but it's cold. (laughs) So it's too cold to commit crimes. Yeah. I think it is is to a degree, you know, and it's one of those things I'll sometimes lock my bike up, you know, when it's, when it's 15 below and, you know, it's like, well, you know, anybody that's going to steal a bike and ride off with it at 15 below is highly motivated. Because if you're not dressed or prepared for it, that's a pretty un- uncomfortable bike ride. You know, yeah. When it's 60, 65 and sunny, it's it's a whole <laughs> lot easier to just ride off with a bike and a little more carefree. Are people biking at like fifteen below? Yeah. Oh yeah. Um, I don't know if you've seen you know the fat bikes that have come into the bike industry in the last decade or two. Um, they're. They've become hugely popular up here. Um, and so the the winter riding is is really cool. It's really novel and gotten to be really quite popular.
0: And they'll handle snow and ice?
1: Yeah. Yep. You've got studded tires that are, you know, generally four to five inches wide. And so you run them at lower lower pressure, um, you know, sometimes even two, three Psi, and so they're just super soft and You can ride on, you can't ride on, you know, just fresh, ungroomed snow. But if it's been tracked, um, you know, a lot of popular rides follow like snow machine trails. Mm -hmm. And the snow machine, the snow machines will pack the snow down just enough that your bike can just ride across this soft, snowy surface and you can, you can cover a lot of ground it 's because
0: if it 's unpacked snow, your bike would just get stuck you couldn 't pedal hard enough
1: yeah, to make it just, go yeah, you kind of just you just sink and you can 't you know you still have too ma- too much mass involved to offset the the softness of the snow but no the the winter fat biking is is an absolute favorite hobby of mine um and <clears throat> you know, when it, when it gets below zero, fewer people ride, but there's a, there's a certain contingent, you know, for me, I, I find myself chasing the colder temperatures in midwinter. There's something special about 20 below. And it's a really, it's a really unique way to experience riding your bike. Um, you know, there's also kind of this novelty and that, you know, sort of like, you know, the air is trying to kill me. And if I don't <laughs> have my act, if I don't have my act together, I could be in, I could be in trouble pretty quickly. But it's also, it's really peaceful. It's, it's really quiet. It's calm. Um, you know, the winters are dark here, but when there's snow on the ground, it brightens everything up. And so there's nights where there'll be enough ambient light whether reflected from the city lights or the moon that, you know, you can go ride snowy trails in the dark with your lights off Yeah, and you can see well enough. And so, so that's really cool. Um, Yeah. No, I love that. Even
0: in in Michigan, we get that where we have enough mm -hmm. snow in the grand Rapids area, which is a pretty snowy place where at nighttime, if you get the moon shining on the snow, it's pretty amazing. I mean, the place will be pretty well lit, you know,
1: no. And I, I really enjoy the winter riding. I was explaining it to somebody last week, you know, how much I love winter and this time of year. And they were just kind of like, really? Why? And I was like, well, there's no bugs, there's no (laughs) bears and there's no tourists. And so it's a time of year that just has its own kind of very special uniqueness to it that, that I really enjoy. Now you've had a beard for a while. Is that practical
0: do people there have to wear beards to the extent they can grow one?
1: <laughs> it it serves me really well, actually. Yes, you know, my wife, you know, my wife will be trying to get a buff to cover her chin <laughs> or her nose, and it it actually does make a difference. Um, so there is <laughs> there is a certain practicality to it. Um, in my case, I think it's largely laziness. I just – I never cared for – I mean, I, I grew a beard in college and have kept going almost full-time since. Um, I just – I don't like having to shave my face multiple days a week. But So if you're out
0: riding at night and it's below zero and it's cold or you might be doing any anything out night, even going for a walk, do you have to completely cover your face? Do people have to – um cover up, so almost only their eyes are showing or or how does it work Or you have to wear a mask sometimes because it's so cold
1: yeah um some of it depends on how much time you spend outside and spend in that cold you know and there's even throughout the winter you know i mean people people adapt and the more you're out there in it the less it seems to affect you um you know very rarely i we'll get to a point where I need to cover my nose and my cheeks where I don't have a beard. Um, you know, whereas other people might ride in ski goggles and keep a buff pulled up and not expose any skin. Um, <clears throat> and I've been, I've worked, um, some remote jobs and had, you know, some, um, Alaska native folks that helped me out and we'll be out there in you know, minus 20 temps or wind chill and one guy I worked with, it was, maybe we were setting up a weather station and he's working barehanded on these metal poles that we're trying to put up for the weather station. He's like barehanded rubbing the tape. And I'm just like, how, how can you do that? Like I'm doing everything I can. I'm in, you know, Arctic gear and a big parka with a fur ruff, you know, just trying to stay warm and keep circulation to my fingers. And he's... I think basically in a hoodie with no gloves on, but, you know, it's 10,000 years of his relatives living in that environment and him spending his whole life out there. You know, what's cold, absolutely freezing to you and me is just another day out there.
0: Yeah, so, I'm sure it's even colder for me, um, being of Middle Eastern ancestry.
1: Yeah, I can't, can't <laughs> exactly. imagine. yeah I'm not I'm not, <laughs> I'm not used not to that kind adapted. of adapted.
0: Exactly. Right. I'm not made for that kind of stuff. Although you know, living here in Michigan is cold, but it's not like that cold. Yep. Um I think sometimes get people get the wrong idea about especially West Michigan, because of the lake and because of um just the the way the wind blows and all that. We just we don't get too cold. It's not yep. it's not bad compared to a lot of other states up north. Um, so where you live presumably has enough um, city lights and stuff where stars are not super visible. But if you go out a little ways, do you do you get an amazing view of the sky?
1: Yeah, yeah, and. You know, and even within Anchorage, it's, you know, it's better than, you know, places as big and populous as Grand Rapids. Um, you know, we've we've got a hot tub at our house and I have, you know, my stargazing app. And so I'll sit there and, you know, pick out different stars and kind of follow them throughout the winter. Um, but again, with the daylight, winter is really the only time that stargazing is a viable activity. Mm-hmm. Um and same with, same with the northern lights. Um, you know, you can, you can occasionally see them really well in Anchorage. Um, but you get even just a short ways outside of Anchorage and the light pollution. And there's just amazing, amazing stars. Um, although my wife and I, we took a trip to, uh, Utah, the Moab this past fall. And one of the things that was, the highlight of that trip for me was the stargazing in Utah and just out in the desert outside Moab. And it was just absolutely spectacular. Um, You know, the Milky way and everything else you could see that we don't get to see on a regular basis up here.
0: Yeah. I mean, where I live in the grand Rapids area, we don't, we don't get a great view of the stars partly because it's so cloudy here too you yeah. know like we have so many clouds in west michigan <laughs> that um it's cloudy i think most of the year yep. and we just don't really see the stars <laughs> yeah i don't
1: i don't know if they still do this but i re- i remember growing up they used to on the news and the weather discuss the minutes of sunlight per month that we would get in grand rapids mhm because because you know January it would be so cloudy they'd be like oh we've had 23 minutes of sunlight in the month of february and it's yeah just, i think that's know, a just dis- overcast depressing <laughs> it
0: is it is a distinctive feature of west michigan that i think a lot of people don't know about like they know we're up north they know we get some snow and all that but we really don't get much sun around here um no, no. and even you know even if it's a lot of daylight, we just don't we don't see the sun. Um, sunny days yeah. are pretty unusual around here. so if if you're out there and you're out in the wilderness, um, are there a lot of UFO sightings? Are people seeing UFOs? <laughs> are people reporting that they saw something in the sky? Because it's so quiet and so um, you know just out there out in the wilderness, do people start to see more things?
1: Um well there's not a lot of people out there. <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. Well, the, you know? the few but, people who are out there. Yes, the few people who are out there. Um you know a couple of days ago I probably would have said no, but I think just yesterday I was reading an article and in Fairbanks I think earlier this week there was this unexplained just kind of round ball of light that was observed in the sky and had people really confused and yeah, it wasn't it clearly wasn't the moon, but it was this very visible, bright, circular phenomenon. Um, the explanation that I read was that. I think it was a Chinese satellite that was dumping fuel as it headed into space or something like that. And they the they spin the satellite as they dump fuel or something. And so you were kind of seeing this kind of as ignition or expression of the fuel as a satellite is spinning and that appeared, you know, the trajectory of it would have been right over Fairbanks at that point in the evening. And so they were like, Oh yeah, that, that unexplained light in the sky you saw was just, you know, Chinese satellite. Hmm. Um, But I've not, I haven't run across a lot of, a lot of UFO Sightings or experiences for people. Um, Like, is
0: is that a thing that interests you? Do you ever think about like, hey, it's pretty peaceful and quiet out here. I'm gonna just observe the sky and see if I see anything.
1: Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, I I can very happily, you know, snuggle down in my sleeping bag and just stare up at the sky. And and you you know you can you can see satellites and everything else. You know the the Northern Lights obviously is a is a favorite thing of mine. the first couple of years I lived up here was a period of really high solar activity. And I worked a shift where I got off work at 11 most evenings. And I would, multiple nights a week, drive to a darker part of town or up into the mountains a little bit and just hang out in my sleeping bag and lay on the ground and watch the sky. And, and in that period, I saw some just, just mind-blowing aurora displays Mm -hmm. and you know and you can be out there and the sky will be perfectly black one minute and all of a sudden there's these you know ribbons of green and i've had nights where you'll see kind of like you know red curtains of light and just phenomenal phenomenal displays and so you know i yeah going out and just staring at the sky is a great way to spend some time in my opinion
0: now in the Pacific Northwest, you, you often hear about Bigfoot sightings. It, do you get that in Alaska or, <laughs> or is it too cold for Bigfoot? Like he just can't be out yeah. there. <laughs> he'll, he'll freeze his butt off if he doesn't have a winter coat, et cetera.
1: Yeah. Um, I think there are some sightings, but I don't think it's as, you know, dense a Bigfoot population up here as it is and you know, Northwest and California, so, or maybe it's just you know such a such a huge place, you know I mean, you know the big they've got they've got plenty of plenty of space to do their own thing, so we just don't see them and don't see the evidence.
0: Yeah, I guess they've got the um, legend of the yeti in the Himalayas, yeah. so maybe uh, maybe there could yeah. be something in Alaska. So who knows. <laughs> So you work as an environmental consultant.
1: Yeah, environmental consultant, environmental scientist.
0: So tell me a little bit about your work. Uh, what does it entail? Like what do you what are you up to on a daily basis?
1: <laughs> um, it it varies a lot, and that's part of what I really enjoy about the job. Um, I I end up doing a lot of, I make a lot of maps and figures for projects that we work on. I do GIS, geographic information system work, um, whether that's for project proposals or for project reports, but a lot of our work will be like soil cleanup and soil excavation. And so the company I work for, we have kind of an in-house excavating company as well so if there's you know a fuel spill in a village um you know they were putting diesel fuel into the village generator that powers their whole community and um you know i've had a case where like a guy thought the pump was off and he went to use the bathroom by the time he comes back 300 gallons of diesel diesel fuel is spilled onto the ground will come in and we dig up that soil and have various remediation strategies to clean that diesel contamination out of that soil, um, and then we do sampling to confirm that. All right, we've found the extent of that diesel spill, and we we got it all. Um, you know, which you know, the sampling is just a glorified way of saying we put dirt in jars, and we we dig a big hole and we take a little spoon and we put little spoonfuls of dirt into a jar and send it to a lab. Um, And then those analytical results tell us, you know, well, it's clean now or it's dirty. Um, Most of our work is regulated by the Alaska Department of Environmental Conservation, the DEC. And so they, you know, they set limits of, you know, cleanup levels. It's like, well, you can't have more than 50 parts per million of diesel fuel in the, in the ground here. So there's is most,
0: yeah. Is most of the contamination from fuel?
1: Um, fuel PCBs, heavy metals depends, depends on the situation, you know, depends on the client, the project. Um, the uh, PFOS PFOA is kind of the, the big up and coming environmental pollutant. Yeah. Um, which was, you know, in Teflon and, all sorts of things for a lot right, of right we've had you know.
0: problems with that in west michigan
1: yeah yeah actually yeah there was a uh i think when mm-hmm. i was there over the holidays i saw there was like a truck that was hauling pfos contaminated soil and the truck tipped over and spilled a whole bunch of pfos contaminated material um so we do we do some of that work <clears throat> um you know it it depends you know you may be cleaning up a brownfield where there was a uh there used to be a dry cleaners and there was lots of solvents or something that leaked out. But, um, yeah, petroleum products is a, is a bulk of the work. Just, you know, people fuel their houses, you know, when you're, when you're outside, you know, Anchorage or the rail belt up here, you know, there there's heating, heating oil that you use and those tanks rust out and leak or diesel generators and things like that.
0: Does it, Present a health risk to you as someone who's out there
1: working with us? It it potentially does. Yeah. Um, and so there's there's definitely that consideration. Um, there's you know a lot of best practices that we follow to protect ourselves. Um, you know jobs I've worked on where we're cleaning up PCBs i've actually had to shave my beard off so that i can wear a respirator and hmm. in the event that any of this pcb contamination in the soil becomes becomes airborne i won't inhale it um you know certain jobs you know we go out and you know tie back suits and so we're covered and we you know we're we're trained in kind of managing and mitigating those those chemical hazards and you know you'll you'll have a job where it's like, all right, this is the hot zone. Anybody crossing this line, you gotta have, you know, boot covers, Tyvek suit, respirator, and then you go through a decontamination process when you step out of that hot zone. So there's 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 a risk. Um I I've got a huge appreciation for the company I work for, um, in that, you know, I've never felt pushed to do something that I was uncomfortable with, or I felt was, you know, beyond a reasonable hazard. Um, Cause you know, like, like so many industries, it sometimes would be easier and cheaper to cut corners or, you know, accept more risk than, than might be reasonable. But by and large, it's, it's not, not something I feel is a, a high risk to my health.
0: So, what's the relationship between companies like yours that are involved in an environmental cleanup and the oil companies? Because oil is such a big industry over there, right? So, huge. Is it is it is it a positive relationship in that they know they they have to have the environmental cleanup, or it gets them into more trouble? So they they've got to work with you guys and have a good relationship, or is there tension?
1: No, there's. There's a really, a really good rapport, I would say, um, you know, and, you know, any of the any of the oil companies operating in the state or on the North Slope um, generally has their own environmental department. Um, and they're, you know, they're reasonably well regulated by both the state and the feds in terms of what they're allowed to do or what standards they're held to. Um and so we'll a lot of times come in just kind of as, you know, sort of a neutral third party <clears throat> um, to help, you know, help with remediation or to work on them just meeting, you know, the regulatory standards, you know, and so there's, there's a lot of just ongoing monitoring that happens, you know, if you're, you're working on the slope, you, you know, the, they'll have a sample, you know, the water around the pipelines or pads or places like that, just to ensure that, yep, everything has stayed within the re- regulatory levels that are, that are established for their industry. Um, but it's not, not something where I've felt, you know, felt hostility or whatnot. Um, I haven't worked a ton, a ton in the oil industry, but, been up there enough, and always been well accommodated and well received. Um, sometimes I think it is just a headache. You know, they have a certain objective, or you know, something they work they'd like to get done, and this is just a mandatory hurdle that has to be taken care of or addressed. So, but, how does this? You know, how does
0: this all impact Alaska politics? Because Alaska <clears throat> is a state where you have. Things like oil companies that are a massive part of the economy, and then you also have amazing natural wonders. People want to conserve things and make sure that the environment is clean, and these things presumably can come into conflict at times. Um, so, what is what is that like? How does that impact <laughs> politics over there?
1: Um, the is pretty significant. You know, the, yeah, natural resources are a huge part of why Alaska is the way it is. Um, You know, as Alaska residents, like we don't pay state income tax, Um, Anchorage and Alaska statewide, we don't have a sales tax. They pay you, right? They, they pay us every year. Yep. (laughs) <laughs> There's the, uh, when, when the oil and gas industry began in Alaska, they established the permanent fund, which is an ongoing investment of oil revenues by the state. And then the annual dividends on the investments are distributed to every Alaska state resident that applies. So, you know, my annual dividend in the 20 years I've lived here has been, you know, generally one to $2,000 and change. So we, uh, we're very, very aware of the price of oil. You know, you, you hear it every morning on the news, you know, the, the price of West Texas crude is at this today. You know, there's the past few years, the price of oil per barrel has been well below a hundred dollars per barrel. And that directly impacts the budget for the state of Alaska, because we, we run this state off oil revenue. I mean, the vast majority of funding for state projects and, you know, the needs of the state come from the oil industry. Um, you know, a few years back there were some changes. Um, it was framed as, you know, trying to incentivize investment by the oil companies, but, you know, they're always angling for, you know, bigger tax breaks or or whatnot to in- increase their profitability and try and make Alaska a more appealing place for them to, uh, you know, develop and extract oil, um, you know, and there's, there's varying opinions, you know, people are like, you know, these, you know, these companies should be paying more than they are and we shouldn't be giving them tax breaks. And we're, you know, we're giving up, you know, tax revenue from the oil companies that we don't need to. And, you know, the oil's there, they're going to want it. So we should, we should tax it, but it's, it's a, it's a, Persistent and pervasive issue in the state and anybody in politics, you know, their their opinion on oil and natural resources is a huge factor in in their political success.
0: So does it play into partisan politics or do the parties, at least the Republicans and the, Dem- and the Democrats, do they yeah. um, have similar views on a lot of these things because they have to play to the same industries and same interests?
1: Um, there's definitely differences between the parties you know as you'd expect i would i would say the republican party is more pro-industry and pro-extraction um you know lisa murkowski and you know anwar is a big a, a big issue up here and one that you know often gets national attention and it's this whole part of the state in the north slope that currently is a national wildlife refuge but has i think some you know, amazing oil reserves that are located beneath it. And people would love to see that developed and opened up for resource extraction. Um, You know, I think maybe on the democratic side, there's more, it's more of an acknowledgement that yes, we need to have these industries, but maybe seeking a different balance and not, you know, not so reliant or, you know, just kind of all out green light for development and extraction. So the definitely, Republicans, definitely some differences.
0: Yeah. At the federal level, at least the Republicans seem to have a small advantage. Would you say that that's pretty consistent throughout the state? I don't know what the state politics are like, but do Republicans seem to have a slight edge in um voters over there
1: yeah oh it's it's a very very republican republican leaning state on the whole, you know, and you know, yeah, because Republicans,
0: and- yeah, you see Republicans win at the federal level, but it doesn't seem like it's the same kind of overwhelming win that you might see in some other parts of the country for republicans, and then you have um people like Murkowski who come off as being pretty <laughs> moderate, so would you say it's it's like a moderate Republican area or do you experience um, – do you experience a lot of the extremes that um, people in the lower 48 experience? I know that there's going to be some of it, of course, anywhere you are in yeah. the country, but Ooh. do you feel it the same way or do you feel like people up there try to get along and it's more of a um, – a place of practicality? Like, you know, we all understand what interests and industries are involved and we're just, you know, trying to get by.
1: Yeah. um, There's, there's definitely, you know, some extremes and very, very passionate people on both sides. Um, You know, I gripe every presidential election about for a variety of reasons feel like you know, my vote up here doesn't matter. I mean, Alaska and presidential campaigns just always, you know, heavily votes for the Republican candidate. Um, I also point out that by the time I go, if I go to the polls here right before they close, you know, seven thirty, seven forty-five at night on election day, well, that's pretty much midnight in D.C., right? Yeah. And at that point, they've basically called the election. <laughs> right. You know? I have I haven't even voted at that point. And then, you know, the number of electoral college votes we have doesn't matter compared to somebody in Michigan.
0: Yeah, I so, wonder does that affect turnout a lot? Do you see like a do you see a big drop in turnout? Because it's true that by the time you in Alaska are voting, people might know the results of the election. Yeah, yeah, the yeah, at like least the, the presidential race, yeah, the election
1: been called, yeah. Um, I mean people still Well, they're as apathetic as most places, I think, in the country. I mean, I don't don't know the exact number on what, you know,
2: eligible voter
1: rates are, but they're as abysmal here as elsewhere. You know, I think think if you get 60% of eligible voters to turn out, that's probably a big success, right? Yeah, that's right.
0: (laughs) Have your politics changed at all since you were a kid? Or do you feel like – I mean, I don't know that we talked – a ton about politics as kids. Maybe we did and I just don't remember it, but um, do you, do you feel like your politics have changed at all? Or do you feel like you're pretty much where you were and um, which is fine. I think I'm pretty much where I was when I was a kid.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, culturally politics have changed Mm
2: -hmm.
1: and you know, I think we've all, shifted somewhat with that you know whether you look at you know lgbtq plus whatever or you know marijuana legalization you know growing up as kids like that was you know marijuana that was bad stuff you know and at this point you know congress or yeah congress was just this, this past week was moving to legalize on the federal level and so you know some of my opinions have kind of shifted you know, with ex- life experience and time and match, you know, some of those I think kind of nat- national shifts, um, you know, on the whole, you know, the community we grew up in was certainly conservative leaning mm-hmm. and, you know, I think, you know, my parents are definitely more democratic leaning and I've, you know, grow- I grew up in that environment and kind of had some of that, that tendencies Um, you know, I currently, I describe myself now as a hardcore moderate and, Mm -hmm. you know, I think both sides are unfortunately a bit extreme on various topics and issues. Um, I don't feel like my politics have changed dramatically as I've grown up. Um, I mean, you may remember though, you know, in high school, I was a very big, you know, rage against the machine fan, (laughs) yeah, Um, which, you know. Is some, you know, politics that are kind of skewed, skewed one direction. It's and their, you know, their music isn't a genre of music that I particularly enjoy, but I really enjoyed the politicalness of their music, um, and still do. I mean, I I play men's league soccer, and most weeks when I'm driving to my game, I turn on Rage Against the Machine. <laughs> Um, but I think, I think my politics have remained pretty consistent as I've, as I've grown up, I've probably if anything moved to be even more moderate than I used to be. But in some ways I feel like that's almost relative to, to where I am. Mm-hmm. You know, I think, you know, in some of those social circles or the places I, have been or lived up here. I'm, I'm more conservative than a fair number of the people I interact with. Um, you know, when I lived in Montana, I was probably way more liberal than a lot of the people I interacted with. Yeah. And so to me, that's like, all right, I think, I think I'm in the sweet spot then.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Well, West Michigan has shifted quite a bit. I mean, since we were young, if you look at Kent County, it's basically a, (laughs) democratic county at least slightly democratic so that's a pretty significant shift from say 25 years ago where mm-hmm. i think you would count on it to be a, a fairly republican county on the whole um, outside of the city of grand rapids but now the city of grand rapids is going to go at least two-thirds to the democrats maybe 70 percent plus so really? it's yeah so yeah. it's a it's a big um it's a big shift and yeah, it does. It does make you feel different, I guess, um, no matter where you live, whether you live here or there. I mean, yep. you're you're experiencing relative to Alaska politics. So,
1: yep. yeah. And, you know, and the politics in Anchorage is more liberal than if you had 45 minutes north and are driving through Wasilla. You know, and you can drive through Wasilla and there's, you know, fuck Joe Biden signs all over the place. <laughs> Uh, it's, a, it's a much more conservative community there than, you know, on the average here in Anchorage. Yeah. but
0: So what do you think about rank choice voting in Alaska, the way you guys have implemented it? I don't know to what extent you've looked into it, but you have a system now where it's something like the top four move on. And yep. I think you get to rank five people.
1: I think so. We haven't had a ranked choice election yet so i'm excited i'm excited to i'm excited for it i'm excited about it um i particularly i particularly like the idea for primary elections um you know i think the model that we've had previously where you know each party kind of runs their own primary rewards kind of the extremes on either end. And, you know, the Republican primaries, well, the most, you know, quote unquote Republican of the Republicans ends up winning. And that tends to be the person who's, you know, kind of most extreme on those issues. And, you know, your most liberal Democrat ends up winning. And then you have a general election with two extremes. And I think that's been a huge part in kind of the polarization of politics nationwide um so i think the ranked choice my hope is that the ranked choice will kind of inspire or force you know candidates to run on more moderate plat or adopt more moderate platforms and strategies you know because you look at you know you know the was it marjorie Taylor Green and whatnot, you know, it's, you know, they're, they're playing to this extreme side of the base. And I don't think that's been good for the country. I don't think that's good, you know, good in our state or Michigan, wherever. So I'm hoping the ranked choice voting will, will reward some moderation in, in our state politics.
0: Yeah, I hear you. I, I think, what it will hopefully do is allow the majority of people to feel represented because what happens right now is in a lot of States is you have these partisan primaries and you can end up with a situation where a minority of voters in a primary uh, nominate someone. And then because that person's of that party, the the other people in the party then vote for that person in the general election, and essentially, what you have is a a small minority of voters selecting the candidate for the general um because yeah. you're just forced into a situation where it's almost you know one on one and I mean you could have third party candidates, but they're at a massive disadvantage in a lot of um yep. in a lot of states so the way you guys have it now and correct me if i'm wrong there's no partisan primary right it's just a one primary everyone is in it
1: and yes now yep that's not how it's been yeah
0: the new thing is everyone's in it so (laughs) conceivably four republicans could take the four top spots or four democrats could or it could be a mix um and i think that's a benefit to the people of alaska and i'm I'm watching it carefully because I want to see how it plays out. Cause I think it might be a good model for a lot of other places in the country. Like here in Michigan, we have straight ticket voting and we have a very partisan system and you end up with this problem where maybe a, a small minority of the voters can pick the candidate. Um, but in a state like Alaska now, you really could have a general election where it is a Republican versus a Democrat versus a libertarian versus a green party. And people can pick. They They can say, yeah, (laughs) yeah, or Santa Claus. And they can, they can say, I want this person. And that's it. That person just needs to get the most votes. And uh, everyone's on equal footing.
1: Yep. Now we've, we've had some drama this past year with the gerrymandering and some of the uh, redistricting and whatnot that they've done. So that's added a whole, whole nother kind of level of nuance to uh, even, even to the rank choice voting. And it's, you know, been, been challenged and being, being addressed. And so that. This would yeah. be at the, at the state level politics, right? Yeah.
0: Because yep. you only have one federal yes. uh, representative. <laughs> And you currently have yep. zero federal representatives.
1: We currently have zero representatives. So what yep, does after?
0: Yeah, what does um, Don Young mean to people in Alaska? Because um, I served with him. I I certainly didn't interact with him a lot. Uh, he he had a curmudgeon-y sort of really? approach to him. Um, <laughs> there was a time when. I think Bader told a story that Don Young had pulled a knife on him. So he's not the kind of guy you want to necessarily mess with or, you know, get into any kind of debate with. Um, he was there a long time and he uh, he served the state of he Alaska, I since, think. He yeah. was
1: there since before Watergate.
0: Yeah. <laughs> so he, like, came in,
1: he came into office, I think, what was it, March 1973? Like I think it was the same week that Pink Floyd's Dark Side of the Moon album came out. Like Watergate Watergate hadn't even broken yet. And so I mean that's it's before you or I was was even born.
0: And Alaska's been a state since when? Do, do you know? I don't want to test test your history here. You probably have to um pass some kind of test to become an Alaskan, right?
1: Yeah. Um
0: it's it's like in the uh, it's yeah, around well, 19, well, oh, nineteen around nineteen fifty right?
1: Yeah, with statehood. Yeah. Yep. Um, I mean, we Alaska was purchased from eighteen sixty seven from Russia, and so it was a territory from that point. Um, you know, the big big changes are Alaska, you know, around nineteen hundred is when just Alaska kind of I think ended up on the map for the United States. Um, you know, you know, there's the gold rush and, and whatnot. And that's when a lot of, you know, miners and missionaries really moved up here and began kind of making Alaska American.
0: Yeah. Alaska is a state since, um, January three, 1959. So even less time than I thought, um, so that means Don Young was really there for most of Alaska's history as a state. Yeah,
1: yes. Yeah. No, he, I mean, he was an institution and he almost never had anybody run against him who had even a, a snowball's chance. So he, he, you know, he was a character. He he easily got the votes he needed to stay in office every term. Um You know the time that I've been here. I mean, he was older at that point in time, and he, you know, at least Anchorage, where I'm at, he wasn't necessarily hugely visible. You know, I, other politicians, you cross paths with. You know, Alaska, it's a huge state, but it's a really small community, and so you. You just you run into people i've run into you know people i know in the most random far-flung parts of the state um and it's the same way with our politicians you know i've i've had flights to seattle where lisa murkowski is just a few rows in front of me um i've gone to the iditarod start you know and sarah palin's down there and so you know it it sort of feels like a lot of our politicians are are part of part of the alaskan community um Don Young, you know, he, he's more from the Fairbanks area or, uh, Fort Yukon, is a town, town village that, you know, he called home and, uh, I actually stopped, stopped by. I I drove by his, his home in Fort Yukon um, last summer or last fall when I was out there, he was out of town, but you know, it's, this town's a couple hundred miles from the road system and I actually I wanted to ask him about you and your time in Congress, <laughs> see if he'd uh, invite me to stay for dinner. But he was not home at the time. Um, but he's he was a character for sure, and you know that was you know people kind of either I think shake their heads at that little chagrin, and some people I think appreciated it. And you know, and he was a a noble kind of guy, and to his credit he's he did a lot for this state you know and to be such a long-term congressman for such a young state he made a lot of things happen that benefited the people that live here Um, and that's that's an undeniable part of his legacy um and people i know that have interacted with him um you know, the last few weeks, you know, since he passed, I've just seen people sharing personal experiences they had with him. And people who didn't even necessarily agree with his politics, in general, seemed just impressed with him as a person. Which I think, you know, says says something about him. Um, you know, and he he would show up at You know events or something and meet people and it it sounds like you know he was very very engaged and seemed genuinely interested in people whether they would ever vote for him or not you know because because they were alaskans and so a uh yeah a character but i think somebody who who did his job did his job well um You know, for a long time, it was Don Young, and then we had a senator, Ted Stevens, who uh, passed away in a plane crash in the mid-2000s. You know, Ted Stevens was in Alaska. He was just referred to as Uncle Ted. And those guys both did a good job of basically bringing money to Alaska, you know, whether it was for projects or, you know, you know, some pork that they'd add to bills to do some important stuff for people in some far-flung parts of the state. Um, that I think endeared them to a lot of people and helped them, you know, remain very popular politicians in this state.
0: Did did Don Young's death surprise people? I mean, did people think he was not well? He had just announced his reelection. And it certainly took me by surprise that he had passed away. But I haven't seen him in a little while, so yeah, I don't I mean, know. I, there are some members of Congress where you see them and you think they're announcing their re-election, but they're not well. Like you can tell, <laughs> yeah, they yeah. might not make it through another term. Yeah. But I didn't have that sense with him.
1: I, you know, I saw the news and was certainly surprised, and you know, immediately texted couple of family members and people are like, wait, what? Like it was, it was sudden and definitely surprising. Um, <clears throat> yeah, I, I don't know, you know, he doesn't, he didn't keep a real high profile up here. So, you know, it's not like people often saw him, you know, he didn't, he doesn't have to hold campaign rallies and, you know, go around fundraising, you know, with your average <laughs> Joe's. So, so he well, wasn't
2: how, uh,
0: <laughs> how do people campaign up there? Because you're, are you going door to door if you're a candidate? Yes. Even yes. if it's, you know, 20 below zero, you're like, hey, I'm here knocking on your door.
1: Yeah. Um, yeah. 20 below, they usually just stick the flyer in the screen door and keep moving. Right. But there, no, it's, it's a lot of door to door. It's, it's. Actually, something I appreciate. There was a uh, a state representative, Chris Birch, who passed away, and you know he's representative for my district, and I'd see him out in the rain, going down the other side of my block, and then coming up and ringing ringing my doorbell, and you know we'd stop and chat, and you know yeah, they're out there going door to door, and I. I actually, I really enjoy it. You know, it's a small enough state that you can actually have some influence. You know, I don't think the folks on the congressional level are necessarily going state or going door to door, but you know, I've really enjoyed a lot of the local level politicians showing up and standing on the front deck with me and talking about industry and talking about Alaskan issues. And it's just, like I said, it's a small community and you know, you might go out for dinner, and get a pizza and realize, Oh, yeah, you know, state representative is just sitting across the restaurant from me. Yeah. I loved
0: doing yeah. that. When I was, when I was campaigning, I loved knocking on doors and talking to people there and yeah. seeing the difference it made over time where, you know, when you're just starting out, you're new, <coughs> they slam the door in your face. And <laughs> as time, as time goes on, they're like, Oh, I'm so excited to see you. And they want to have a chat. Yep. So yeah. it's, it's a fun experience uh, as a, as an elected official.
1: Yeah. Well, and I I assume and I think you guys and you know the folks up here you've you got your notes on residents and their likely leanings. Right? And so maybe you know I think some candidates maybe skip our house knowing <laughs> you know, some of the yeah, predispositions.
0: That's, yeah, yeah. For sure candidates have an idea of who lives where, although as people move over time, you know, you, you can't yeah. keep track. But maybe moves aren't as, as frequent where you live. I don't know. Um, but it certainly can become a, an issue. But you also look for other clues. You go to the door. You notice whether they're a Michigan fan or a Michigan State fan. <laughs> you know, you, yep. notice a, you, you pay attention whether they're an Ohio State fan. You, um, you know, you learn things about people just by seeing what they put out in front of their house. Oh, yeah. You know, what do they, what do they care about? Sometimes people put stuff that really indicate, um, you know, what they value and that makes a difference. No, So, yeah. So you've got um, a 50 person primary, right? 50 person primary for Don Young's congressional seat.
1: Yeah. When, yep. When the, I guess 51 last, last Friday when it closed and, So we've got a uh, we've got a broad field to choose from.
0: Yeah, that's I mean, that's incredible.
1: And I didn't throw my hat in the ring like you uh, you'd been. Well, I did. To
0: to be clear, I texted Bo and said, um, you should you should put your name in there because with a 50 person primary, anything can happen. Yeah. Like, you know, just um, the name ID of a few of the candidates is going to be high, but for a lot of them, it's just going to be pretty low, so it, it might be possible to sneak into the top four because they'll be divided up so many ways. Yep. There's there's obviously someone like Sarah Palin who, from my perspective, just put her name in because she knows she has high enough name ID where she might get into the top four just on name ID alone. She doesn't have to do anything.
1: Yeah. No, I'm, I'm curious to see how this goes for her um was there any is there
0: any reason to believe she wouldn't make top four
1: i think very much so yeah yeah i i i don't know that she has has a great chance up here um she left a bad taste in a lot of people's mouths um you know the the thing is, I like I remember when she was announced as John McCain's running mate, and she was you know halfway through her term as governor up here, and I actually I had a very favorable impression of her as the governor. Um, I thought she had done done a good job and was actually a, a pretty moderate and unifying political figure in the state and then i think she got on the national stage and took a turn that was downright wacky at times and you know i don't know if it was the fame or the the opportunity you know for power or whatever but you know my impression of her very quickly changed and i think that was true of a lot of people up here so i don't know that she would have the support from the Republican base that she's going to need to be successful up here. Um, so, yes, yeah, it could be. A, it could be a very humbling, very humbling experience for her.
0: Could be. She's she's changed her politics certainly quite a bit. When I first heard about her, my impression was that she was a more libertarian-leaning Republican. Mm-hmm back when she was governor of Alaska, before the McCain selection, after yep. McCain after McCain picked her, is clear she slotted herself as more of a social conservative in, in many ways, um, maybe because that's what McCain needed at the time. Mm-hmm. And then she seems to have uh, evolved or devolved, I don't know which way to, <laughs> to frame it, into yes. into more of a trump republican um sort of detached from ideology but more of a let's just let's just go crush the left
1: yeah and i don't know that that's going to be a successful strategy up here um you know partly again you know it's a small community up here and so just crushing one half of your state isn't, isn't necessarily a winning strategy. Um, Yeah. When there was a number of years ago, Lisa Murkowski lost in the primary to a pretty extreme um, kind of tea party bent fellow, Joe Miller, who was probably, you know, kind of, kind of Trumpian very, very extreme, um, he was a character. It was one of those. I opened the news every day just to see what this guy had done or said that day. And, you know, he won in the primaries again, you know, partisan primaries. And Lisa Murkowski ran a successful write in campaign, which is just, you know, on a national level, it's, that's huge. And especially when you've got to write a name like Murkowski. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, and, and, get it, and get it spelled correctly. <laughs> Right, I mean, and they, they went around, they were, you remember the Lance Armstrong, you know, silicone yeah. bracelets, they made Murkowski bracelets and we putting those out so people could go into the voting booth and have the spelling of Murkowski right there and get it correct on the ballot. But, you know, it's, those extremes aren't necessarily guaranteed to be rewarded up here.
0: Yeah. Well, we've got a caller. Should we take this caller?
1: Yeah, I was, yeah, I was okay. looking at that. Sounds good.
0: All right. Mason?
2: Hey, uh, I guess I, I got a couple things I wanted to say. I thought it was super interesting how um, you were saying how Alaska is like very like small population-wise so that the politicians are kind of forced to be a little bit more active in the community and stuff. And I thought that was really interesting because, like, I mean, where I'm at, um, I'm, really- Where are you at? I live in Michigan. I live in mid Michigan. Um, and I know a lot of like local politicians and stuff. I know some of them personally, but like people around here don't really know who their representatives are and stuff. I mean they might know the, the representative that goes to Washington, but our state reps, our state senators, I barely had a clue. Like, uh, since the past couple of years. Yeah. Mason, I,
0: I barely have a clue and, you know, there's no one who's been more involved in politics than me around here, but, um, I barely have a clue about it.
2: Yeah. Like, uh, it's crazy. Like people are like, who's the mayor? I'm like, we've had the same mayor for 20 years. How do you not know who the mayor is? (laughs) I don't know. It's crazy to me. Like I'll be talking to somebody who's that. Oh, that's our state rep. Uh, It's crazy to me that some people just like, don't get that. And I think that that's something that I wish was like, I wish our people were more active. I wish our people were going door to door, but they, they show up for a photo op every once in a while. Um, And then like more recently, um, we had a situation where my city was like a long time, like democratic city. And then Trump came along and did his magic. And then here we are now, our County went to Trump two times and went from going to Obama twice. So the Michigan democratic party was like, like they were shocked. They were like, how could this happen? And so they ended up, uh, putting all this money into this race, but like nobody knew the guy, the Republican, he talked about real policies, um, and then he also just knew everybody. He knew people. He would say hi to you at the grocery store. He would talk to you. Even if he knew that you disagree with them, he'd try to find some common ground, and that's how he won. And now we have a Republican state ele- rep, and it was one of the only flips um, in the 2020 election cycle. So I just think it's really interesting that like, somewhere like that you have like a lot of like uh, active politicians, and here we just don't see that very much. Yeah, thanks Mason. Yeah, of course.
1: Yeah. I mean, Justin, when you were in office, I mean, you were hitting the parade circuit, right?
0: Yeah, definitely. <laughs> I I mean, I always got compliments on how active I was in the community, going hitting the doors, hitting the parades. Um hitting the parades was especially difficult because they would often run parades simultaneous. Like you'd be in you'd have one community that has a parade and other communities got a parade at the same time. or just half an hour apart. So we had, we had some pretty um, elaborate plans to get me from one place to the next. I'd have to have a car waiting at the end of the parade. And then I'd be rushed to the next parade where I'd get there right when the parade is starting to move, but we'd be at the back of it. So it was, so did, um, you, did you get
1: invited to the parade or did you have to ask to be well, a part of the parade?
0: Typically, elected officials are asked to join the parades for a lot of the communities where they'll get a request, you know, if you want to be a part of this parade, we'd love to have you. But a lot of people skip these things or they don't know how to dress in them either. Like I remember early on um, when I was running for Congress, I would show up at the parades dressed like a normal human being, wearing shorts. And, you know, a polo shirt or something, but short sleeves. Yeah. Yeah, I'm just, I'm walking in a parade. It's hot outside. We're talking about Independence Day. Um, That's how you dress. And the other candidates for office would be dressed in like five-piece suits. And I'm like, this is not working. You're not not winning over the voters with your five-piece suit. Like, Like, nobody believes that you are interested in them dressed like that. And the other thing they would do consistently that I changed and uh, revolutionized, I think, in this area at least, was going and shaking hands of people on the sides of the parade route, which would seem common sense if you're running for office.
1: Right, But shaking babies you, and kissing hands.
0: You wouldn't believe how many candidates just sit in a car or walk straight down the middle and they wave at people and that's it but like people want to see you, they want to talk to you. Mm -hmm. Um, so
1: yeah, authentic connection and that, that resonates with people. Yeah. I, you know, I
0: had a good time doing that. That's actually one of the things I miss, um, about the job is getting out and and meeting people, talking to people, shaking hands, the, the one-on-one interactions, those kinds of things. Um, whereas a lot of, Politicians do try to keep their distance from from mm-hmm. the public, which is really strange to me. Like these are the people you represent, and you're also trying to get them to vote for you. So <laughs> I don't know. I can't relate to it, but yeah. Well, I, we've I se- actually yeah had a,
1: I had a short sure. question for you that occurred to me the other day. So when you know when you were like, oh, you should you know you should run for Don Young seat, and I yeah you know I dismissed it because that really enjoy what i do but then i started thinking about it and i was like well what like what would that look like for me like say i i ran and happened to win and i know it's a special election so it's a shorter term but like what what would my life look like if i won that election in june and became you know alaska's representative in congress in congress
0: well, like, first, first of all, you'd have the best advisor of all time in me. So I know
1: that, that was, that was going to be one of my conditions on like, all right, I will run for Congress, but I need you on board. 100%.
0: Yeah. Oh, I'd be a hundred percent on board.
1: All right. Um, you need to get up here regardless of whether you're my, my chief of staff. That's or a, not. It's
0: a long trip, but I, I, I will definitely try to make it happen in my lifetime. <laughs> Um, But it is a long trip. Um, But, you know, I think that, look, when you're running for office and um, you get elected to office, it's about representing the people. And someone like you who is authentic, I think is precisely what we need. I, I don't care as much about the ideology because what I've seen in practice is that people discard their ideology as soon as they get there.
1: Mm -hmm. I'm ready to do that.
0: Yeah. People are, people (laughs) are, I'm not advising you to, I think ideology, (laughs) I think ideology is a good thing. I think it's good for people to have principles. It's good for people to have ideas that they come with. Um, but what ends up happening is so many people who tell you they have principles, tell you they have an ideology, they get there and they, they discard it immediately. So I'm much more concerned about having people who are genuine <laughs> human beings, who care about other people, who will respect the role they have, who will um, be humble about it and really work to represent everyone in their community. I want them to have, of course – a principled ideology i'd love for them to be libertarian i'd love for them to uphold the constitution 100 percent but i've just found consistently that that's not in the cards for the vast majority of them and sometimes the best you can ask for is someone who just goes there and and does what they say they'll do they're honest they're respectful so you and i could have differences of of political philosophy or ideology and i'd be happy to still support you if you're someone mm-hmm. i i respect and admire so you know i think it's just about going there and and doing your thing on behalf of everyone yeah you know being so there for I, everyone
1: like like day one i fly to dc like am i sleeping on the floor in of my office do they have a <laughs>
0: if you want to they have
1: a like they have like a new congressman house airbnb for me you know what am i it's kind what of. I, it, I mean, what am I looking at? Is there an orientation?
0: There is an orientation. It's kind of funny. Okay. Um, what they do is they kick out the old congressman and they let well, the new congressman come of in. Yeah, case. it's it's kind of. Um, yeah, in this case, in your case, it's 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 been taken care of. But what ends up happening is, if you are a retiring congressman, they're already telling you, like, "Hey, get out of here by November." Like they're they don't want you sticking around. Your term goes um till the beginning of January, actually. But right. they're kicking you out already by November. And it's a really like um <laughs> sort of so you send all the
1: classified documents to Mar a Lago or wherever you uh, reside right, yeah. when you leave.
0: Yeah, it's a really shaming experience where you're just hey, you can have this um little cubicle somewhere, your whole office gets one little cubicle we have to make way for the new members of Congress. So you just got to get out of here. Um, it's, it's like a don't let the door hit you on the way out sort of situation. And, and so the new members of Congress are the ones who get treated um, like kings. You know, you'll come in there. Yeah. They'll, they'll have a nice orientation for you. You'll get a nice office. You'll set it all up. Um and if you want to sleep in your office, you can sleep in your office. I I think that uh, you should get your own place because when you sleep in your office, you're basically sleeping there rent free on behalf of um, taxpayers. You know, taxpayers are paying for your housing essentially. Um, but-,
1: <laughs> but well, it's already paid for. I mean, it doesn't cost. Oh uh, yeah,
0: people. but you're. You- you're using more electricity, you're using their okay. cable TV, you're using the... I mean, yeah, of course, there's overhead costs, you know, things are already paid for in many ways, but you're certainly using more water and, and all that, because they're, they're oh. showering there too, yeah. so... Um, well,
1: I'll have you... but You book me a, a nice hotel room somewhere, that sounds good.
0: <laughs>
1: I, go th- I go through orientation.
0: Yeah. Then you'll, um, you know, you'll meet the the incoming class... And I think it's really unfortunate that they pretty quickly try to essentially separate you out into Republicans and Democrats. You know, it's like Republicans do this thing. Democrats do their thing. And I think that's that's not the way it should work. Sides
1: in the dining hall.
0: Yeah, the whole thing is like it's like, yeah, you Republicans go over here. You Democrats go over there. You do your orientation. You do your orientation.
1: Um, you know we'll go tweet and, some mean things about each other and
0: yeah and then sure you'll tweet mean things about each other and then um, you know go high five afterwards which yeah. is kind of how it goes
1: so would I, have to, would I have to get on Twitter if I ended up in Congress
0: I was thinking about that you're not really on Twitter are you
1: no, I created an account a few years ago and didn't like it, and so I haven't – I mean, it's probably four or five years since I've, like, been on my Twitter account. I check yours probably two, three times a month. I just pull up your Twitter page and read, read through as much <laughs> I like as I can. I like the two, three before... times
0: a month. That's the way it should be done.
1: <laughs> it's, it's just enough. It, more, more often, if there's something significant going on, like a war in Ukraine, which we – haven't talked about but um yeah i just i touch base basically enough that i can spend like you know four or five minutes and scroll through like all right what has justin said since i was on here last and so i I pay attention i read everything you you post i'm not logged in so i can't comment or right what, what is it likes or thumbs up whatever they do on twitter but I, I keep I keep tabs on Bo, you, Bo. How guess, old are uh, you? You're, you're not you're the
0: same age as me. So
1: <laughs> I, but that's I, I. just don't use that platform. I know. Yeah, know, I've got my Facebook and my Instagram. I I'm not not fluent in Twitter. Um, but yeah, I oh, I think my your head your uh, all right headphones on, dying earbud just died. Can you hear me? Yeah, I can
0: still hear you. You can switch over to the um, the phone. Yeah. Just use it as a speakerphone. You right. don't have to put it up to All your. Right.
1: Well, I'm Hold on. Let's see. Do one earbud at a time. I'm just... Oh. just use the. You All can right. just use the speakerphone oh, too. Steve. All right.
0: Just uh, just take your earbuds All out right. and okay. uh, turn them off.
1: No, nope, we're good. I just I do one earbud at a time. I get twice the battery life. Okay. Let's That's the go kind back. Fishing congressperson, I would be.
0: Um, Mason maybe has a follow up. I'll I'll
2: put Mason back on. Mason. I did
1: say he had he had a couple of
2: things. Okay, I'm ch- I'm going to try to make this quick. So basically, I'm I'm curious, and I'm going to get to my question in a second. But first, I want to. Here's my pitch. Okay, so this is how, like my plan, my personal plan. I still got a lot of time. I'm only 15, but I want to eventually get to be, like, an independent politician that gets elected to something. Like, that. that's not just a, a state rep or whatever who actually goes further than that. So I'm curious. First things first, uh, I'll turn 18 in 2024. We have a school board election that year. I'm going to run for school board. Um, the idea behind that is, like, school board is a, a, it's a nonpartisan um, position. It's pretty much, um, it's almost, like, the same size as our state house district. So it's, like, the same, same constituency. So then if you get elected to that, in the meantime, while I'm on the school board or whatnot, what I want to do is I want to work to pass ballot initiatives in the state that get ranked choice voting passed. They get rid of um, straight ticket voting um, so that it makes it a little bit easier for somebody who's an independent to get elected. And then from there, we'll see what happens. But anyway, I guess my question is, like, I, I clicked it the second you said it, but you were like, well the the Republicans Democrats have their own orientations for Congress, right? So like what happens to somebody who's an independent that goes to Congress? That's what I'm curious about.
0: So in most cases people who are not affiliated with Republicans or Democrats still caucus with They the, don't w- they
1: don't go to Congress, right?
0: Well, <laughs> they, they yeah. generally first of all, yeah, Bo is right that they generally don't go to Congress, but what ends up happening for those Rare independents who get elected, an example might be Bernie Sanders or um, Angus King, is that they pick one of the parties and they caucus with that party. So those two caucus with the Democratic Party. I was a unique situation when I left the Republican Party. I uh, did not want to caucus with either of the parties.
1: And neither that of them is, wanted you.
0: And neither of them wanted me, anyways. But that was highly. Irregular, In other words, it's not something that happens very often, um, if at all. I'm not sure it's happened previously. I I just don't know um, any of the history of that. But I do know there was an expectation that I would caucus with one of the parties. And the reason that people caucus with the parties is because the committee system is actually designed around these two major parties, believe it or not. Committees are not really an official institution like, say, you know, Congress itself, which is a constitutional process. Committees are like an internal thing, and the parties have designated themselves as the entities that will select who is on the committees. So if you're not in the Republican Party or the Democratic Party, you are not getting a committee assignment. They're not going to give you one. So you have to caucus with one of the two if you're going to get a committee assignment. Um, Obviously, if there were enough independent or third-party candidates, something would break. They'd have to change it maybe. But in my circumstance, they weren't changing anything. And so I ended up with no committee assignments, which I was fine with. Um, And everyone should know that the committees don't really do anything anyways it's just more political theater for everyone at home. It's it's all uh, preordained. Um, it's even scripted. The stuff you see on TV, you think it's spontaneous. Oh, so-and-so came out with a spontaneous statement. It's it's scripted in advance. Um, at least I can speak for how it works in the house. People are getting scripts. They're not even writing them. They don't even know what they're saying half the time. So, it's like The
1: Bachelor. It's the appearance yeah. of spontaneous but there's yeah it is script in the background.
0: It is much like um some kind of scripted TV show where you're seeing the trial run in real time. The the rehearsal is the whole product. There's no because they're not practicing it in advance. It's just hey representative so and so can you read this? And then they read it. They don't even know what it says, which is why you'll sometimes see them stumbling over words that allegedly they wrote or not understanding the questions that they are asking at the end. Or uh, it's also the reason why they often will speak for four minutes and 50 seconds. And then they'll ask a question at the very end because they don't actually want to get into a back and forth with the witness because they don't know anything. So they just want to leave it on a question and then have it either timed out where they can't go into a back and forth or, um, in a, you know, you know, At most, the way
1: Ted Cruz didn't read those books that he was asking about,
0: (laughs) I can't speak for Ted Cruz specifically, (laughs) but, but I can say I've been in committees and I know what they're doing. Um, they're just handed scripts. So my point is you can get a committee assignment if you're a Republican or Democrat, or you, if you caucus with them, you don't get one if you don't. And, uh, the committee assignments are pretty much worthless anyways, but they don't want you to know that. Because they want voters to believe that they are doing things, right? If if someone is on a committee and they're giving this elaborate speech, do they really want voters at home to know that, first, they didn't write the speech? Second, they don't even understand their own speech. Third, it's all meaningless and they're not getting anything out of it. Like, nothing's happening. Here, it's just like, a, it's a script they're reading and nothing's actually coming out of this. They don't want people to know that. They want people to think that they are brilliant and magical and they can, you know, they can do all things for their constituents. So it's kind of a sad situation, but that's life in Congress.
1: Is there any hope for change?
0: I think the only hope for change comes from outside of Congress. You can't change it inside. You can't. There's, I, I tried every method to change it from the inside. And there was no way to change it. So it's got to come from people outside of Congress, um, sort of a citizen movement. And I think it's about educating people about what's really going on, which is part of why I'm doing this podcast. You know, it's not a political podcast. You know, we talk most of the time about non-political things, but politics obviously comes up. I've been trying to do some stuff on the outside rather than on the inside to try to motivate people and change hearts and minds. What I came to realize after years of being in Congress is that it was people on the outside who had way more influence than I did on the inside. It was TV personalities. It was podcasters, um, uh, even journalists at times. These people were influencing the politics more than people on the inside. So, you know, I'm I'm trying a different approach uh, because I think that's where we might be able to make an impact.
2: It's really interesting that you say that because um, in, like, left-wing circles, I don't know if you've ever crossed paths with any, like, left-wing podcasters on this app at least, but that's, like, exactly what they're talking about right now because, like, I mean, you've seen the efforts of people trying to get, like, quote-unquote progressives into congress and then they kind of just become nancy pelosi 2.0 and i guess like that's kind of the same conversation that they're having is like well well, this isn't working we keep trying to go through like electoral politics but like it it isn't doing anything so like they're now there's kind of this like divide i guess where people who think we should keep trying to get people elected and people who think that we should um try to like break it from the outside like you're saying
0: Yeah, I think it it has to happen from the outside. Not because I don't think Congress itself can be useful as a tool. I mean, I support our system of government when it's working properly. If it were working the way it's intended to work, where you have a legislative branch that legislates, an executive branch that executes the laws, and a judicial branch that is deciding cases – well, that's great. If you follow the Constitution, you follow our system of governance, I'm for that. The problem is it doesn't work that way. And we need to make sure people on the outside, people at home who are voting, understand that it doesn't work the way they, they might think it works. And to this day, probably the most disheartening thing for me is not what's going on on the inside where I know that a lot of bad stuff is happening. I know these people aren't reading the bills. I know that they don't care about the things they claim to care about. I understand all that. What's disheartening for me is that there are people on the outside who still believe that the people on the inside do care and are reading the bills and are principled. Every day I'm seeing people come on to social media acting like they're principled, but I know these people's votes. I served with them in Congress. These people are not principled people. They'll come one day saying that they're totally against this thing. It's so outrageous what's going on. And these people voted for the same exact thing themselves. And
1: and are they just pursuing the power?
0: Yeah. And people at home, unfortunately, are falling for it. And despite all of the information we have out there through social media, it's like people – People don't focus on what's actually happening. They're just – they're so caught up in the headlines and the rhetoric. You know, some some governor or some member of Congress can go say something really, you know, aggressive and, uh, you know, rah, 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 you know, for, for their own side on TV and people believe it. They fall for it. They they act like they're so upset about something, but they're actually the ones voting for the same stuff they claim they're upset about. And nobody at home is noticing. And it's, it's really, or very few people are noticing. And that, that is the most frustrating part about all this, just how consistently there is hypocrisy throughout the whole system. And people at home aren't seeing it. That's what I want to change because as long as it's going on the way it is, there's not much use for Justin Amash in Congress. Like I'm less useful than I would otherwise be. I can, I can go there and use it as a platform, but how many years am I going to go there and use it as a platform and spin my wheels mm-hmm. knowing that at the end of, end of the day, I actually can't change anything internally. So I'd like to change things on the outside so that they will change on the inside and then i i'd be happy to be involved in politics in the future if i feel like i can make a difference on the inside
1: yeah i know i was texting with you when you when you left congress and i mean you you summed it up you said i feel like i can be more effective for the country outside of congress than in which was kind of a disheartening thing to hear. You would think, like, you know, elected representatives in Congress should have the greatest ability to do things for this country.
0: Yeah, they just don't. They just don't. It's it's an elaborate form of performance art is how I describe it. And every day people fall for it and they're blinded by their own partisanship. I, I think... The strangest thing for me is seeing people on the left who fall for it because I get the sense that a lot of people on the right, a lot more people at least, know that it is BS. Their solution is wrong. A lot of times their solution is, well, let's just tear down the whole system. What do we need the Constitution for? It's all garbage. We just need power. That's increasingly the stance of many people on the right. It's part of this national conservative movement that's going on. Just you know, tear the whole system down. The left has used power in a way that we don't like, so we're going to use power in a way that they won't like. Um, it's just like a, they they view it as a war, but but they still kind of understand that there's a problem with the system. So, in some ways, it's easier for them to relate to what I'm saying. But what ends up happening on the left. Is so many of them are caught in this trap of thinking that if only you didn't have Donald Trump or if only you didn't have Kevin McCarthy or Marjorie Taylor Greene or something, everything would be better. Like Nancy Pelosi's so wonderful in their minds and she's doing so much for the country. And thank God we've got Nancy Pelosi there, they'll say, um, because she's keeping things together. But she is a bigger part of the problem than so many of the people they're talking about. She's a bigger... Like, who's a bigger problem in actual, real terms? Nancy Pelosi or Marjorie Taylor Greene? For sure, Nancy Pelosi is a bigger problem. And I'm not saying this in a partisan way. I also think Speaker Ryan is a much bigger problem, or Speaker Boehner. And certainly, Kevin McCarthy is a much bigger problem than Marjorie Taylor Greene. So, we have to think about who is causing all of this disruption who actually has power in the system. It's very few people at the top who have power and the rest of the people are just performers. Like you can be upset about Marjorie Taylor green, but she's just a performer in the show. She's not directing the whole thing. You gotta, you gotta look at the top of this production and you've got to change the system there at the top. Um, and, and I just guess it's disheartening to me that I see so many people on the left who will see systemic injustices everywhere, and rightly so. But then when they see Congress, they don't think that there's a st- systemic problem. They think it's just a few bad apples. If we just got rid of those few bad apples, everything would work perfectly. When actually there is a systemic problem there. And and I'm just trying to get them to see that the same systemic injustices they see going on in other parts of society are happening right there in our government. It's systemic. And you have to get to the core of it if you're going to change things. So that's that's been maybe the most disheartening thing. It's It's people at home, unfortunately, who are not seeing how bad it is. And look, I know people are busy. People got a lot of things going on. But unfortunately, if if people at home don't see what's going on, if they don't wake up to it, this is going to continue. It only goes on because nobody at home is upset about it. You know, there are very few are upset about it in a real sense. I mean, a real sense where they won't vote for it to continue. They'll say they're upset about it, but they're going to still go vote for the same crap to go on. Do you know how many people tell me Every congressman, oh, I don't like those other congressmen, but my congressman's great. <laughs> you know, it's so many people. So, you know, it can't be that every con- everyone has their own congressman as a great person, but all the other ones are bad. No, th- there's a big problem here. A big problem here. Well, on that cheery note, Bo, <laughs> you got me riled up here at the end.
1: I thought we were going to get together
0: and solve all the problems. Yeah, we're not going to solve it, but I would say you should run for Congress. It's I, it's unfortunately too late now, right? Even for the for the full year, um, or the, the full the yeah. full term edition of it, right? Like we're not right. just talking right. about finishing out the term. There's another election for the full term.
1: Yeah, the full term's coming up, which the appeal to me was actually the the interim and just like a just short doing term it for a, a few Congress. months. Yeah, like that that's a, that actually sounded appealing when I started thinking about it and it was it was too late to do anything about it.
0: There are members of Congress like that and they get to have the perks of being a member of Congress for all time just cuz they were there for a few months. And I'm not saying they have elaborate perks, but there's things like they can go onto the House floor. They can come on, you know, forever. You can come onto the House floor. Like I'm I'm allowed to go onto the House floor um for life. So that's that's nice. I mean, it's nice if you want to go get an upfront, you know, view of what's going on in Congress, but
1: yeah. No, I I've never been to DC. I really? I'm a little bit ashamed to ashamed to admit it. I wish I had come while you were in Congress. Yeah. It would have been really fun to hang out in DC with you. I'm optimistic and hopeful that someday you will be back in DC. And I promise you right now, I will come visit. Um, Thanks.
0: Yes. Thanks. And
1: whatever whatever capacity you're there, I'm I'm gonna come and we're gonna hang out because I want the uh, I want the DC experience with you. Well, maybe I'll be there um, as your chief of
0: staff if you get elected.
1: I was gonna say, and if and if I end up, <laughs> you know, in Congress or DC, like please come come visit. No, gonna, <laughs> yeah. i'll need you i'll need you to show me the ropes and tell me where to get you know a good dessert at 10 o'clock on a thursday evening or something
0: yeah but, well they they shut down so much so much of dsc in the evenings but yeah well bo
1: we've said that's it all why i need the inside track
0: yeah we've said it all we have,
1: i mean we could keep it going for a couple more hours but you probably start losing listeners at a certain point so we'll yeah. save it for some time in the future
0: no, we got to, yeah, we got to save some stuff for future conversations with, with Bo. I, I, I like having friends on because we can really get to the heart of some things in a way that, um, you know, talking to strangers doesn't work quite as well, but.
1: Yep. Well, you and I have never, um, uh, never struggled to, uh, have enjoyable conversation. I don't know if people listening enjoy it or not, but I sure do i did too all right bo i'll see you again soon um yeah. check out my tw-
0: check out my twitter uh what do you say twice or three times a month is that yeah. what you
1: said yeah, you did? Two, three times a month yeah yeah oh yeah nice. check it out I every just, once I just, in a while I just keep tabs on you like, yeah what, what's justin saying
0: i'm on instagram too but the only thing i post there is um pictures that i took
1: yeah, and even those are those, all, I mean, those are only those aren't even two, three times a month.
0: Yeah, I don't update it enough, but those are the my Instagram is exclusively for pictures I took with my iPhone. Like, I don't even use any other device. It's just if you want to see pictures I took with my iPhone, here's where I post some of them.
1: Right. Uh, that's Can what you I like. Any other account where you post like the memes you found humorous that day?
0: Yeah, I. I, like, I probably should just do that. dump
1: dump like six yeah, eight just memes in, at a time just some yeah. kind
0: of like meme dump account
1: yeah no like that's you know that's your sense of humor and that's that's you and yeah you, know, you you share that with the people and i think it'd be appreciated
0: well maybe someday i got a lot of ideas but i i can't uh implement them all
1: all right well you start another instagram account i'll follow it <laughs> thanks bo even if i don't follow you on twitter Yeah. Well, it was a good
0: one. Enjoy talking to you.
1: Yeah, I'm going to go skiing. Enjoy your evening.
0: All right. You too. Take care. All right. See ya. See
1: ya.